Well, this morning we're coming to Acts chapter 2, and we come to that wonderful day that we call the day of Pentecost. Um, Earlier, the disciples had asked Jesus the question, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus kind of said, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but but here in chapter 2, brothers and sisters, we come to this chapter, we're going to see the beginning of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And that's really what Jesus implied in his answer. The, the disciples were thinking of the finale of everything at the end. Um, but Jesus told them, I'm going to begin the restoration process, and it's going to go on over time. It's going on, in a sense, right now. So what we're going to see now is the beginning of the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. An Israel of which you are a part now, of which I'm a part at this moment as we speak. So chapter 1, which we've finished now, has set the stage. It's really set it for us in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. When he came and he spoke to the disciples about the things concerning the kingdom. It's also set the stage with Jesus' ascension into heaven and the promise that he will come again. And then finally, it set the stage with the restoration of the number of apostles to 12 after the replacement for Judas Iscariot. So those three things have kind of set us up for what we come to now in chapter 2, which is in your handout, the dawning of the eschatological age. Now, I don't want to be overdramatic. I don't want to be superfluous with my words. But I don't know that there are words weighty enough to describe what we see in chapter 2. Um, it is in chapter 2 that the kingdom and the authority of God's Messiah breaks in upon the world. There really is not any way for us to overstate the world order altering. Now you can see, I I spent some time trying to figure out ways to say it, but not possibly overstate it. This world order altering salvation historical significance of this moment. This is a passage where every preacher who comes to preach on and maybe all, all passages, but, you know, you come to Acts 2 and you're like, do it, should I even try? Is it possible to really give the sense of what is happening in this moment on this day? There's no way for us to overstate the significance of this moment for us who have believed in Jesus. So, we need God's help as we do each week. Let's, let's be praying for that even. Let's be prayerful in our listening. Luke begins in verse 1. Now, I had planned to go through verse 13 today, and we could have, but there's three words here, four words, that we really want to camp out on that I think open up to us. They open up the vistas of what is going on in, in in this day. When the day of Pentecost, which we're going to talk about Pentecost next week, but when this day had fully come, They were all together in one place. So, 
That's a somewhat awkward translation, but I believe it's the best one, of Luke's expression in the Greek. Now, obviously, the, Luke is not saying, well, it's possible that the day of Pentecost could have partly come, or it could come incompletely. No, if the day is here, it's here, period, right? So what do we mean by translating when the day of Pentecost had fully come? The, the NASB translates more simply, when the day of Pentecost had come. That makes sense. Or the ESV says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. It's not actually what Luke said. Now, it's not a bad translation as far as they go. The problem is they don't capture, and no pun intended, they don't capture the fuller meaning of what Luke has in his mind. There are way more obvious words Luke could have used. He had other words at his disposal if he wanted just to say that it came, it's here, it's arrived. Instead, he chooses a word that appears only one time in the entire Greek Old Testament and only three times in the entire New Testament. He's the only one that uses it. So in Luke chapter 8, Luke describes how the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And the boat began, he says, to be swamped. The word is sumplerao. It's the word we have here in Acts. It, it began to be filled with water. So you see a, a physical vessel, a container, being filled up with water. In Second Chronicles, instead of a physical object being filled up, now we have a period of time being filled up. So imagine, imagine instead of the boat, we have a container of a number of years. And the years are filled up as the time goes by, as it were. So Luke 9, uh, Second Chronicles says, All the days of the land's desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were filled up. Okay? Completed. And then the only other time we see this word, is in Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that when the days for Jesus to be taken up were soon to be filled up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, the point in both of those last two passages that we read is the completing of a set number of days or years specifically, not on any one of your calendars at home, not on one of the disciples' calendars, but on God's calendar. So the point of this filling up is a filling up of a set number of days on God's calendar, and specifically, God's redemptive calendar. It's the filling up of that time. And so, here in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus when Luke says that a single day has been filled up, that's unusual. Because how is a single day filled up? Well, well, at one level, he is. He's just saying, it arrived. It came. But at another level, Luke obviously means for you and me to hear something. Something wonderful. The arrival of this day marks the filling up the ultimate eschatological filling up of the time on God's redemptive calendar. The arrival of this day marks the eschatological completion. There have been other completions before. Okay. But this is the ultimate completion of the time on God's redemptive calendar. And and I, I will clarify, this is already and not yet. 
Okay, <clears throat> so it inaugurates the fullness that will be completed at the return of Christ. We're reminded of Luke's words in the opening verses of chapter 1, when we, he says, gathering the apostles together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. So that's that sense of time passing. And so they are to wait until the time. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says another time, not many days from now. So what, what the perspective we need to have is that this waiting of Jesus' disciples, now they've got it easy now. They've just got to wait no more than 10 days. But the waiting that they're doing right now has been the waiting of all God's people since the beginning in Genesis 3. That's the perspective. Therefore, in Jesus, not many days from now, we hear that the years and the centuries and the millennia on God's redemptive calendar, they're about to be completed. They're about to be filled up. Now, maybe you might say to yourself, are we giving a little too much emphasis to Pentecost? Because isn't it Jesus? Wasn't it Jesus who came in the fullness of time? What about, what about Jesus' work? And this is where this is really important, what's in your handout. This day of Pentecost, on this day, in your handout, the completed work of Messiah in his life that he lived, his perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God's law and love to God and, and, and neighbor. In his death, his atoning death, his substitutionary death, his sacrificial death for sinners like we are, in his burial, in his resurrection, that completed work will finally now be manifested. It's about to be applied in its eschatological fullness. So without the day of Pentecost, brothers and sisters, the work of Jesus is not fully manifested. It's not fully applied. So Pentecost, as it were, inaugurates the fullness of, of the application of Jesus' work to his people. So this is that like final event on the calendar by which it all comes, comes to fruition. The, <clears throat> this is why Luke writes now, and when the day of Pentecost had, and he can't, it's almost like I think he can't help himself. It's like, Erechimai is not going to work. Ginnemai is not going to work. Those are the other Greek words that he could have used. And he's like, no, I'm going to use sumplerao. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a gale force rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I invite you to imagine for a moment just being there in that room on that day. And I'd like us to realize right now that the power that, that broke in upon the world in the context of the church on that day is the power that is here today. Those were the signs of a reality that was happening that continues to now. Notice, first of all, that this was a noise like a gale force rushing wind. So it was not actually windy in the room. 
And this was not actually the sound of a literal wind. Notice, second of all, that this noise is said to come from heaven. That's where the noise came from. So what's the meaning of this noise? A noise has meaning here. Like a gale force rushing wind coming from heaven. Some translations say it was a mighty rushing wind. Not a bad one, but the Greek word is more vivid than that. It's more descriptive. So we could translate, as, as some translations do, violent Forceful, turbulent. The psalmist writes in Psalm 47, and, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm looking at where this Greek word appears in the Greek translation, but it's, it, even in the Hebrew, it, it's as similar as the concept that's there. It says, by a violent wind, you will crush the ships of Tarshish. Now, we have pictures of Pentecost. You can find pictures of Pentecost online. And... I often find there's this nice, you know, maybe a swirling breeze or, or there's these tame little candle-like uh, tongues of, of fire hovering over them gently. That's not the picture that Luke gives us. Quite honestly, not even remotely. This is a violent wind in the context of 47, Psalm 47 that crushes ships of Tarshish. And Tarshish built ships not to be crushed easily because Tarshish was a seafaring, seagoing people. The purpose of this wind, though, is not always destructive. And so I don't think violent is always the right word. Violent sounds negative. So that's why I've suggested gale force. I could say forcible, but that seems a little too tame. So it was really tricky to get this word. Exodus chapter 14 says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord stirred up the sea by this specific kind of south wind, this gale force wind, and made the sea dry ground. So, Psalm 47, the gale force wind crushes the ships of Tarshish. Exodus 14, the gale force wind parts the waters of the Red Sea. Now here in Acts chapter 2, Luke tells us that this noise that came from heaven was like a gale force rushing wind. Once again, this word for rushing means to drive along. It's like that which picks up everything in its path and carries it along inexorably. It means to propel to carry along. So Acts 27, and once again, we have this picture of the wind and a ship and the sea. Before very long, there rushed down from the land a tempestuous wind called Uraquilo, and when the ship was caught in it and the ship could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves just be carried away, along, uh, carried along. That's the word, carried along. That's the rushing wind, carried along. And they weren't being carried along nicely in this case. They were being beaten and battered to shreds, essentially. Instead, Isaiah speaks of a rushing storm. Again, a storm that sweeps up and carries along everything in its path. So here in Acts, okay, come back to this upper room on this day of Pentecost that had fully come, and now we have this, this, um, this tempestuous Wind. We might expect a noise, like a gale force rushing wind. What do you think it's going to mean? When you hear that kind of a sound, what is it going to mean? We might expect it to be a sign of chaos and destruction. 
certainly it's the sign of something powerful enough to visit ultimate chaos and destruction upon the world. I don't believe we ought to underestimate the power of this wind. But now we have to consider the Greek word for wind. The language of gale force and rushing supports the translation wind. So we do wind. We can't just do the Greek word because none of us would get it, right? So we have to pick an English word. We pick wind because it's gale force and it's tempestuous. But there's this. Except for one other place. The Greek words that translate wind in the Old and New Testament are always animas, animate, think of that, to, to animate something, put wind, life, breath in, and pneuma, which is our word for spirit, or pneumatic, or wind, again, air. Never, not a. Only one other time is this word not a translated wind. So it's like, you don't really want to translate it wind here, but you kind of have to. Furthermore, 24 of the 25 times that this word appears in the Bible, it always means, here's the key, it always means breath. First time this word appears in the Bible, in the Greek Old Testament, is Genesis chapter 2. And God formed the man with earth from the land, and the Greek uses this phrase, and blew, like the wind blows, and blew into his face the breath. That's the word that we have here for wind in Acts chapter 2. The breath, the na'e of life. And the man came into being as a living soul. So Elihu says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. In, in the New Testament, this word appears only one other place, and it's in Acts. So Luke knows this word, and he knows it means breath in other places. God himself, Paul says, gives to all people life and breath and all things. Almost always this word means breath, as in the breath of a person or a creature or the breath of God. When Luke speaks of a gale force, rushing wind, we would have expected him to use one of the more common words for wind. Instead, he uses the word everywhere else, refers to breath. Now, one more thing. You're, you're there, I'm sure, already, but David tells, at least where we're going, David tells how when he cried out to God for deliverance from his enemies, watch what happens. The Lord thundered from heaven. The channels below the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered. Talk about upheaval, world upheaval. They were uncovered by the rebuke of the Lord from the wind. That's the word for breath, uh, for wind here in Acts. From the wind, but what is this wind? It's the wind of the breath of, in the Hebrew, his nostrils, or The word can also mean anger. So from the wind of the breath of his nostrils. 
hear the wind before which the waters of the sea run away and flee. The wind that lays bare the foundations of the world. What is that wind? It is nothing less than the breath. The breath of God. So here in chapter 2 of of Acts, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and the disciples were all together in one place, what is the meaning of this sudden noise that comes from heaven, from heaven, the dwelling place of God, and now of our risen and ascended Savior Jesus Christ, What is the meaning of this noise that comes from heaven like a gale force rushing wind? It's so vivid, isn't it? On one hand, it signals the mighty inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You get the idea that this is a wind before which hurricanes and cyclones and tornadoes pale in comparison. This is a wind before which nothing can stand. Right? It's going to come. The kingdom of God is in breaking into this world. There is no king. There is no nation. There is no obstacle. There is no enemy that will be able to stand before it. But more than this, or in your handout, it is coming with an irresistible power. But more than this, it signals that the kingdom is coming not, not in the power to level armies, which it was powerful like that, and it will be manifested that way when Jesus comes again. But right now it comes with the manifestation of God's power to breathe into the nostrils of a spiritually dead people. The breath of a new spiritual life. So in other words, this sounds like a gale force rushing wind and and it comes from heaven and it fills the room where the disciples are gathered. It represents nothing less than the mighty life-giving breath of God. I'm not talking about something mystical here. There's not actually a physical breath that's doing this. No, this is, as we'll see, the work of the Spirit doing a spiritual work, a transforming, miraculous new creation. So, even as God once breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, so that he became a living being, that was the first creation. Now God is breathing into the nostrils of his new covenant people, the eternal the resurrection life that belongs to Messiah's kingdom. Um, Again, I don't know how to say it better, but I know that there must be a, a way. Some 600 years earlier, The prophet Ezekiel had seen a vision of a valley full of dry bones. We might remember this. I think it was from last Christmas or sometime recently. Let's read Ezekiel 37 in the light of Acts 2 now and what we've read there. Then Yahweh said to me, prophesy over these bones. And the bones are are the people of Israel, the covenant people and their spiritual deadness, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, and their 
under the judgment of God. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. Then Yahweh said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says Lord Yahweh, come, breath, from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. You can imagine now, as the breath comes, you imagine the sound of a gale force, rushing wind. I mean, you've got a whole valley full of a multitude of, of tons of dead bones. You need, a, you need a powerful breath to raise this entire multitude to life. And that's what we have here. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, <clears throat> these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves. And this, this opening of the graves, it, it eventuates in a physical resurrection from the dead. But what he's talking about, first of all, is the spiritual resurrection that, that guarantees the physical resurrection. So when he says, I will open your graves, he's saying, I'm going to breathe into you a new spiritual life. And you're going to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit, my breath, within you. And you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. So here in Acts chapter 2, on this day of Pentecost, is the fulfillment. It has fully come of Ezekiel's vision. Back to where we started. In the arrival of this day, the time on God's redemptive calendar, which none of us had ever seen, has finally been filled up. And now the kingdom is beginning to be restored to Israel. Insofar as Israel itself is being raised from death to life. That's what's happening here. We have, we have not just isolated individuals, though we'll see we have that. We have a covenant people being raised from the dead to be God's bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. We now have the very life of Christ, brothers and sisters. What does this mean for for you and for me and for us? It means we have the life of Christ within us. Through the spirit of Christ. The spirit that Christ sends. The spirit that testifies to Christ. The spirit that enables us to cry out as a fellow heir with Christ. Abba, Father, we have the life of Christ within us through the Spirit of Christ who indwells and fills us, which is to say we have the life of God within us through the Spirit of holiness who indwells and fills us, the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just everlasting life. 
And I invite you again to make this personal. Again, these are not things we believe are true for a group. We do believe that. But what we have come through faith to believe, this is true for me. You, you appropriate this. It is me, it is I who have the life of the Spirit within me. I just, I just got to sit and think about that for a moment. Believe it. Lay hold of it. Live it. It's not just everlasting life or the promise of life in heaven, though it is both of these things. This is a new principle of life within me now. So Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, see there it is, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free because you have a new principle of life in you from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through our own flesh, our own sinful flesh, God did in that mighty rushing, that gale force rushing wind. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's the completed work of Jesus so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit has taken the completed work of Jesus, applied it to us, and manifested that work in its fullness by raising us from death to life. By His Spirit, God has breathed into your nostrils into our nostrils, the breath of Christ's own resurrection life. The life of Messiah's kingdom. So that we might live now, as Paul says in Romans 6, so that we might live to God. That's the life you have. That's the life you've been given. By the power of God. It's a life you couldn't give yourself because of the weakness of your flesh. Your sin. This is the miracle of Pentecost. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, not only was there suddenly this audible to the ears uh, uh, noise from heaven, like a gale force rushing wind, there was also a visible sign. And there appeared to them in verse 3, tongues like fire dividing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. The word, I, I think, again, maybe the word rested. I, I like the word rested. It, the word is actually the word for sit. It's like they, they sat on each one of them. But the word rested gives us a nice um, uh, pastoral, maybe, connotation in terms of a pastoral scene, of a peaceful scene, of something pleasant and just peaceful. And again, I think that's misleading I don't think we ought to imagine a peaceful, gentle, flickering flame hovering over each disciple. So, don't look at the pictures online. If the noise the disciples heard, if the noise was like a gale force rushing wind, I think it's far more likely, given the context and given the Old Testament background, that what they see now is something like 
tongues of, in your handout, a blazing, consuming fire. In the Old Testament, the consuming fire symbolizes, because I'm asking myself, what is this fire? And why, are they, why is it sitting on each one of the disciples separately? What, what does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, again, this consuming fire symbolizes the reality that God's holy presence is deadly to sinners. We have to have this backdrop in mind before we can appreciate the wonder and the awesome beauty and grace of this, of, of this picture in Acts chapter 2. Genesis 3, the way to the tree of life is guarded by the cherubim and a flaming sword. Flaming sword. In Genesis 15, Yahweh's presence is represented by a flame and a smoking oven and torches of fire that pass between the pieces of, of the animals. And we're told that a great dark fear fell upon Abram. We read in Leviticus 10, Then Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire, a consuming fire, came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them. Exodus 3. The angel of Yahweh, we know he appeared to Moses in a, in a blazing fire, it says. And when Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. And what did he say to Moses? Don't, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. The place in which you are standing, you are standing is holy ground. We see a similar picture, Exodus 19. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And what does Yahweh say to Moses? Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see. And many of them perish, are consumed in the fire. So this consuming fire, it represents the holiness of Yahweh, which is, which is consuming of all that is not suited to its holiness. Anything that is not holy, anything that is not, it, it is immediately burned up, incinerated. Therefore, it symbolizes the fire of his wrath, of his burning anger against all sin, against your sin, against my sin. We need to see this. Our sin is, after we're saved, our sin is no less repugnant to God. It is no less, it is no less in and of itself calling forth that, that fire to burn and incinerate us. This is the fire that never stops burning. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to return his anger with wrath and his rebuke with flames of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by Yahweh will be many. There was another than positive side because you're saying this can't be where X2 is going, right? But we appreciate X2 when we appreciate this. Because there was another positive side to this consuming fire of God's holiness. Because if through faith in the promised Messiah, you were protected, you were covered from this fire consuming you, well then, the prophet said that one day, the fires of God's judgment would purge in your handout. All of the wicked from out of Israel 
I mean, if you, were a, if you were the righteous remnant in Israel, you spent your life groaning because you were surrounded in the covenant people by people who were worshiping idols and di- breaking the Ten Commandments. But God said that one day the fires of his judgment would burn and purge out of Israel all the wicked. And it would leave then. What does it leave? A purified, righteous remnant. Once all the wicked have been removed by the fires of God's judgment, then it's going to be that purified remnant that God is going to take and make into his new covenant community, his his messianic people. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 4, the Lord will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinse away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. It's the same fire that destroys, but that fire is now bringing about a good to the righteous remnant by faith. We read in Isaiah 6, after judgment and destruction, there will be a tenth portion in the land and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There will be a holy seed left after the burning is taken away. All the wicked, there will be a holy seed that's left. We see that then in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them aflame, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And Maybe we don't get that, but man, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I've been to the zoo before when you see, like, I've seen giraffes let out suddenly from where they were, and they're just frolicking and skipping, and it's a great, perfect picture. Only this is the cattle let out from the stall. It's a great picture of the joy that the people were going to have when they had been, been delivered into a people of righteousness. It's with this background in mind that we hear the words of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. As for me, Jesus, uh, John says, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, breath, wind, the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm not saying the Spirit, it, spirit the Holy Spirit is, is personal, a person in that sense, but there's a reason it's called the Holy Spirit. And I will baptize you with fire. His winnowing fork, by which he will purge out the wicked, right? The winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's the consuming fire that purges and purifies the people of God. And so the ultimate separation. Now here, here's the thing. Now, now this is important because we've got to put this together. The ultimate separating of the wheat from the chaff is still awaiting Christ's return. It's still waiting his coming. 
Not yet. But here's the thing. This is the important part to grasp. The purging fires of that final day are already burning. They're burning now. They began to burn already when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Because because the baptism of the Holy Spirit has made already a separation. Okay, an eschatological separation between the wheat and the chaff. In the past, back in the day before Jesus had come and the Spirit was poured out, those who belonged to the wheat and those who belonged to the chaff, they existed together as equal members in Israel, as the covenant community. But when the eschatological spirit, now, okay, when I say the eschatological spirit, I mean the spirit who now is the spirit of the risen Christ. The spirit in the Old Testament was the same spirit. He's, we're going to see next week, he was still called the spirit of Christ. Even the Old Testament, the spirit was the spirit of Christ. But, but he wasn't in the sense of Christ was not risen. Now he's the, the spirit of the risen Christ. Now the Spirit um, communicates to us the accomplished, finished work of Jesus. And that has made all the difference in terms of our experience as the people of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is, this is our privilege. That's why I was reading in Hebrews this morning. Um, and, and it was talking about how all the people in the Old Testament, they, they looked by faith. And these were pretty amazing people, some of them. But they never got what they were looking for because... Because it was being saved for, for the day when we came along. So when the eschatological spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the risen Messiah, when he is poured out, what's the result of that pouring out? The result is that all those without the spirit are now excluded from God's new covenant people. They no longer have a place. The judgment has begun. The winnowing has started. The purging fires are burning. Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so we see he does not say, if anyone has not prayed this prayer, if anyone has not given mental assent to all these doctrines, Though some of those things, uh, the, the doctrines are essential and important, some of them. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Those who do not have the Spirit of Christ are the chaff, who, if they do not repent, will be burned up with unquenchable fire. The fires that are already burning now and will be fully manifested on the final day. Those who do have the Spirit are the wheat who are already even now being separated out and gathered into Messiah's barn. So in the coming of the Spirit then, we have already today the separation of the wheat from the chaff. Already today the purging, smelting, refining fires of God's judgment are burning. Okay, Acts 2. Uh, you've got, now you've got this, this whole tapestry in your head. Now we come to Acts 2. We ask, what does it mean when there appear to the disciples tongues like fire 
dividing themselves and resting or sitting on each one of them. I, I think I think a little bit. I don't think you know Luke. I don't think he intends this analogy, but I think of when Moses saw the the bush that was burning, but it was not consumed. I think of here we have this. I imagine this blazing, consuming tongue of fire resting upon me, sitting on me, and I'm not consumed. I think the picture here is that here we have the renewed, the purified remnant. These are the people into whom God has breathed the spirit of his eternal, risen, resurrected life of Jesus Christ. So this is the remnant and this is therefore, therefore the people that are left after the purging fires of God's judgment have done their work. This is the remnant for whom the consuming fire of God's holiness is not a sign for them of judgment and destruction. Well, then what is it a sign of? It is the sign of God's presence, his gracious powerful presence with them forever in and through the spirit of the risen Messiah. We see this pictured in Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah 4 says, we, we read the first part earlier, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. There's this fire that purges and burns. Then Yahweh will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her convocation a cloud by day, even smoke. Again, we ought to see here that this cloud is not a fluffy white cloud. This is the smoke of a fire, this this cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. Just, Just set it up here. You have the cloud by day, which is smoke, from the flaming fire that's visible by night. You, you, you think of it this way. The cloud is what veils the fire, or the fire inhabits the cloud, or the smoke is the smoke of the fire. The smoke of the fire envelops the fire. So it's, it's really one thing. That reminds us, doesn't it, of the pillar of fire and cloud? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that stood over God's people when they were in the wilderness and again. Those were not two separate pillars. It wasn't like they had a pillar of cloud and then it transformed into something else at night. Now now let's bring in the other pillar, the pillar of fire. No, at night, the fire shone through the veiling cloud and smoke. While during the day, it was the cloud or the smoke enveloping the fire that was visible to the people. So in Acts chapter 14, it is the cloud that it said the cloud gives light at night. It says the cloud gave light at night. Well, how did the cloud give light at night? Because it was inhabited with the burning, consuming fire. And later on in Exodus 14, we're told that Yahweh looked down on the camp of the Egyptians, and he looked down on them. At one and the same time, he looked down through the pillar of fire and cloud. There was one pillar, fire and cloud. Once again, the cloud veils the fire. So, Isaiah describes 
The future, he looks to the future and he says, one day, after the fire has done its burning, purging work, that fire then, that consuming fire of God's holiness and the smoke that envelops it is going to be a canopy over the remnant that remains. The fire will do its consuming work, then it will do its protecting, guiding work. And so the fire that is the sign of God's burning, purging presence in judgment is also the sign of God's protecting, guiding presence in salvation. Moses prays in Numbers 14, You, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. The Greek there is, is it, again, it's written in Hebrew, but it, the Greek uses the expression, while your cloud is settled upon them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, here's the beautiful thing. <clears throat> Honestly, brothers and sisters, I don't know if Luke saw all this, and I'm, I'm hesitant, but I believe God saw all this, and that's why he did this. Luke doesn't unpack the symbolism and the meaning of these two signs, but I wouldn't be surprised if Luke did see all this, and, and I believe that God did this because he was revealing this to all his people for centuries to come. So in the Old Testament, there was one undivided pillar of fire and cloud that stood over the entire covenant people. So you've got this big covenant people, got wheat and chaff in it. And then there's one undivided pillar of cloud-enveloped, smoke-enveloped, consuming fire hovering over them. But what do we see in Acts? Here we see multiple tongues of fire and... um, Some of our translations say distributing themselves. I think it kind of misses the point here. The word is maybe more literally translated dividing themselves. So it's as though you have the one consuming flame. But now, wonder of wonders, it's dividing. It's being divided and hovering and resting and sitting upon emphasis each one. Of them. Here too, then, we see a separation being made. The chaff is being separated from the wheat. Before, the pillar hovered over the whole people without making a distinguishing separation. Now, the tongues of fire hover over each one, thereby making a distinguishing separation between those who are in and those who are out, those who have the Spirit and those who will not. Now, that's not to say that the the tongues rested on every single person who had the Spirit, but that's the picture that we have here. And here we also see, then, the blessing of the new covenant. That all of us, all of us, in this new covenant community, who have believed in Jesus, we have the Spirit of the risen Christ within us. And sometimes you just have to spend time. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking, okay? I'm not talking about just mentally psyching ourselves out. I'm talking about you just have to spend time believing the word of God. 
It will make a difference in the living of your life this afternoon. We all of us have the spirit of the risen Christ within us. That, that's different too. That God in Christ, through his spirit, is present with you. With each one of us. Guiding us, protecting us, comforting us, convicting us, empowering us. In short, in short, saving us. So we come to, again, I, I, I want to read this, this passage all together. And you can take this tapestry that, we've, that Luke has painted, that God has painted for us, and, and read it now, maybe more informed. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a gale force rushing wind. It's the breath of God. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues like fire dividing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means that the time, the time on God's redemptive calendar has been filled up. The Messianic age is here. The days of fulfillment have come. It means that the age of the risen Messiah, not the, not the promised Messiah, it means that the age of the risen Messiah and therefore of his life-giving spirit. The, end, the, the meaning of the resurrection of the Messiah is, among other things, the fact that he is now the life-giving spirit. The spirit of Christ is now then here. The question we have to ask ourselves then is this. And again, the, the word is so important, it's just that one letter word, I. Am I raised from death to life through personal faith and trust in Jesus? Don't, don't take comfort in being surrounded by a lot of other people who have personal faith and trust in Jesus. Don't take comfort in, in believing all these things that, I've, that we have talked about this morning, believing that they are true for an undifferentiated group of people. Am I raised from death to life through personal faith and trust in Jesus? Is the spirit of the risen Christ now alive in me through faith in Christ? Have I been filled with the spirit of Christ so that I live now to God? That's the miracle of Pentecost. John writes in his gospel, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. And this, I love this because we just finished going through the gospel of John. And now we get to come back and, and see it fulfilled. This is what Jesus said. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, 
From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. In other words, the Spirit of the risen Christ. But the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And now, now, now today we know the Spirit has been given. He has been given. Because Jesus has been glorified. So I ask you, have you believed in him? It's a simple question. Have you believed in him? Let me ask it this way, which is just as important. Are you even now, at this moment, believing in him? So that it is no longer you who live, but Christ, the Messiah, living in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working such a mighty miracle. Lord, let our, let our eyes and our, our minds and our hearts be enthralled with your power, with your covenant faithfulness, with your love, and with the wonder that you have breathed into the dead the breath of life, setting them on their feet, giving them eternal resurrection life and a life that is now lived in the power of the Spirit of Christ to you. Thank you, O Father, for the picture of these tongues of fire that that sat upon each one of the disciples, not consuming them, but having begun the work of purging. They are now the sign for us of your your presence with us to guide and to lead, to protect, to convict, to comfort, in short, to save. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of living in these days. And Father, I would pray that that we would all have the joy of confessing together that we have believed in Jesus. And that as a result of believing in him, who has now been exalted to your right hand, the Spirit of Christ has now come to live in us. We are not the same. We are not the same people we once were. We have been utterly transformed. May our lives then be the continuous growing manifestation of that work that you have wrought in us. To your glory, to the honor of your name, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.